Morning. Turn your Bible to Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 27 today. Luke chapter 9, verse 27. The title of my message is The Next Best Thing. The Next Best Thing. We're always looking as a society for the next best thing, are we not? We are always looking forward, forward, forward. What's going to be the next best thing? We, we have so many, uh, so many things in technology and, and, and so many uh, things in the, the world of celebrities and the sports world. And it's, it, we're always on pins and needles wondering what's coming next? What's going to entertain us next? What's going to be the next best thing? My daughter Mallory is notorious for wanting to know what the next best thing is. You see, she uh, th- this summer we, we kept saying, as we were coming up to summer vacation, my wife kept building it up and building it up and, and saying, you know, Mallory, it's, it's going to be summer vacation. And when it's summer vacation, we're going to have so much fun. We're going to do so many fun things. And sure enough, Mallory was, was very excited awaiting summer vacation. And, and we, as the, as, as summer vacation arrived, sure enough, we ended up doing some fun things as a family. We would, we would do things like, you know, go out swimming. And we would swim and swim and swim. And at the end of swimming, right as we got dried off and got in the car, she would say, what are we going to do next? And then we would, uh, we would say, oh, okay, you know, well, hold on, Mallory, we're gonna, we're gonna figure it out. We have time. Don't worry. The summer's long. And so sure enough, maybe a week or two later, we would take the children to the aquarium. And we went to the aquarium and we looked at all the fish and all the, the beautiful, beautiful, uh, things of the sea. And, and, and they were having a glorious time. Bennett loved looking at the sharks and Mallory loved looking at the turtles and on and on it went. And by the end of the day, we got back in the car and Mallory looks at us and says, what are we gonna do next? We went camping. A week, no, excuse me, uh, uh, four days of camping up at uh, Big Sur, up in, uh, uh, near the, with the Redwoods in, in California. Glorious, glorious setting. We had so much fun. I, I want to go back every year. I, I hope to go there every year. It's so amazing. We go camping. We have a glorious time. So much fun playing and just enjoying nature. And the moment we left that campground, Mally said, what are we going to do next? What's the next best thing? I want the next best thing. Can't even enjoy the moment because you're thinking about the next best thing. Jesus in Luke 9 is going to say, look, the next best thing is coming. The kingdom is coming. But it's not ready in full just yet. And while you wait for the next best thing, don't just sit idly by complaining that it's not here yet. Live now. Live now in the present. Live well in the present as you wait for the next best thing. As you wait for the kingdom of God. Don't skip over the here and now while you wait for glory. This present life is part of the journey. Part of the journey I have for you, 
says the Lord. And as long, so, so, so live as I've called you to live in the here and now, knowing that it will make the next best thing that much sweeter when you get there. Live in the here and now. Live as I've called you, Jesus says, knowing that the next best thing, it'll be even sweeter when you get there. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. Let's stand as we begin to read from this portion of the Gospel of Luke. And I might add, we're intentionally beginning today in verse 27, despite the fact that some of your Bibles may have this verse as the tail end of the previous story we looked at. Some translations and and Bible versions will have verse 27 with the previous story. Other translations and and Bible versions will have it with the present story. I take it more with the present story, and there's a reason for that. So beginning in Luke 9, verse 27, all the way to 36, the word of the Lord. Jesus speaking here. He says, but I tell you truly, speaking to the disciples, I tell you truly, disciples, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he, Jesus, took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as Jesus prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him, they were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men who stood with him Then it happened as they were parting from Jesus, as Moses and Elijah were parting from Jesus, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, so says Luke. Peter didn't know what he was saying. Verse 34 And while Peter was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. You may be seated. Verse 27, I tell you truly, Jesus says, there are some of you disciples standing here in front of me who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Jesus has just been talking quite a bit actually about death in the same conversation with his disciples that he's having right now. 
He's talking quite a bit about death in the more recent parts of the narrative in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 22 to 25, which we looked at just last week, you see him referencing death and loss and destruction multiple times. So the disciples are hearing all these words about death, loss, destruction. They're hearing it from Jesus who in their mind is Messiah. He's King. He's the Lord. The one for whom we've been waiting, the hoped for one of Israel, the Christ of God, the Messiah from God. And so the disciples, as they're hearing this talk about death and loss and destruction, it's not comporting with their view of who Messiah is and what he is meant to bring with him. They all expected a triumphant Messiah, a king, a warrior who would restore the kingdom to Israel. And so it's likely in verse 27 that their ears begin to perk up again when Jesus mentions seeing the kingdom in verse 27. Yet still, they would have been perplexed. And as much as they, their ears perked up, hearing the, the idea of someone seeing the kingdom, at the same time as their ears perk up, they're confused and perplexed. Because Jesus is now suggesting that some of them would see the kingdom before they died? Huh? In the mind of a first century Jew, once the kingdom was here, there would be no more talk of death. Jesus, what are you talking about? Verse 27 is a very mysterious statement from Jesus. Much more so than our, than our reading of it in the 21st century will ever give it credit for. This is a mysterious statement to the disciples who hear it. And it may, it may have been entirely unintelligible to them, as in some cases it is for us, were it not for the story that immediately follows this statement in each of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all immediately move from this mysterious statement of Jesus that some standing here would not taste death until they see the kingdom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke move from that statement into a story of what is known as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Some standing here, some of you disciples, Jesus says, will not taste death and in the Greek, the word taste there is an indication of tasting it in full. A full and complete experience of death. Some of you standing here, he's looking at the twelve, will not die until you see the kingdom. Until you see the kingdom of God. Sure enough, in the very next verse, we begin to get an answer to what is behind this mysterious statement. For in verse 28, 
the people that Jesus references as some standing here turn out to be Peter, James, and John. And he takes them up a tall mountain. And long before, long before their physical death on earth, those three disciples witness something so glorious that it can only be described as a glimpse into the kingdom of God. Take a look at verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he, Jesus, took Peter, John, and James, some of you standing here, and went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 29, and as Jesus prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and the robe and his robe became white and glistening. His face was altered. In the Greek, uh, heteron, in the Lucan version, in the, in the versions of Matthew and Mark, they use a different Greek word, metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphos. Jesus' face was altered, that it was, it, it was changed into something of a different kind, something of a different quality. He was changed in form. As we'll bear out later in the Gospel of Luke, if we were to continue flipping through the pages of Luke and come all the way to the stories of, of the resurrection of Jesus and after the resurrection of Jesus, it will bear out later in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus' new resurrected appearance was altered. Altered enough such that many who first saw his resurrected body did not immediately identify him. Case in point, uh, the men who walked with Jesus on what's known as the road to Emmaus. When Jesus walked with them, they did not immediately recognize who he was, despite the fact that they had been with him. His body had changed, it had altered, metamorphosis. But neither were the changes to Jesus' resurrected body later in Luke, neither were they so dramatic, such that it rendered him unrecognizable. No, that wasn't the case. In Christ's resurrected body, there was dramatic change, and yet there was still a measure of familiarity upon second look. Because eventually they, they took a second look and they realized, that's Jesus. This is probably what's happening here in Luke 9, to the face and, and, and body of Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John are brief eyewitnesses to the Son of God in all his future resurrected glory. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun in Matthew's account of this story. His face shone like the sun. Years later, uh, the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness to this, Transfiguration, Peter, John, and James. Years later, the Apostle John would describe over and over again in the book of Revelation the physical appearance of Jesus in, at the end of days. And time and time again, he would mention that his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Not just his face, not just his body, but also his, his attire. Take a look at his clothes. Verse 29, his robe became white and glistening. Literally in Greek, bright as white lightning. White and glistening. Reminiscent of the attire, by the way, that one day 
we will have, according to the book of Revelation, again and again in Revelation, in chapters 3, 4, 6, and onward, it mentions white garments, white robes. When Jesus returns, we will be clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. I hope you look good in white. If you don't now, don't worry. Your new body will look just fine in white. I'm wearing white, and it's after Labor Day. I know that's a fashion faux pas for some of you. Christina would know, right, Christina? You don't follow the rules. Wonderful. I will always wear white after Labor Day, and I do so in anticipation of the robe that I will have one day. Amen? Jesus totally changed. Face, body, appearance, white, shining like the sun, like lightning. But that's not all. Verse 30. Take a look at verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men talked with Jesus, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Two men appear with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. Moses, we all know Moses. Moses, the great patriarch of old, who took the Jewish people out of Egypt, out from the hand of Pharaoh, and said, let my people go, and took the people from slavery into freedom in the promised land, the land of Canaan. The land that God had promised to Israel. Moses, he represents in part the beginnings of the people of Israel. One of the beginning patriarchs who took them from slavery into a life of freedom in the promised land. That's Moses. Now we have Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet of old, who spoke truth in the face of great wickedness of King Ahab and Jezebel. Two of the most evil characters in the Old Testament. Read about them in the latter part of 1 Kings and in the early part of uh, 2 Kings continues the story of Elijah. Elijah, who also, according to Malachi, the prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, it's written on your outline there. Look at the very bottom. Read that. This is significant. In which Malachi prophesies, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, by the time Malachi wrote that, penned that, speaking the words of the Lord to the people of Israel, Elijah had been long gone. How did he go? He went up in a chariot of fire years before Malachi, three, four hundred years before him. Elijah was in heaven. And Malachi yet says, hey, before the last day, before the end of the age, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so in the mind of the Jew, in the mind of the first century Israelites, you've got Moses and you've got Elijah. You've got something significant here. Something is about to take place. Moses, the beginning. Elijah coming at the end of the age. And uh, just as an aside, um, take a close look now at all six individuals we have on the mountain. 
Because this is kind of interesting. You have Moses, right? Moses is on the mountain with Jesus. Moses, having died, died, buried with the Lord, now in heaven. Moses, died and buried. You have Elijah. Now, he didn't physically die, did he? I just said. He was caught up. Caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire, according to 2 Kings chapter 2. The Lord took him. He, he didn't die. He was taken up to heaven. Then you have uh, Peter, James, and John, three other characters on the mountain. Those men, very much alive, in their mortal bodies, living on the earth. And of course you have Jesus in all his glory and majesty and power, the Son of God. Does it occur to you that this moment precisely characterizes what the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Christ will look like? When the trumpet sounds on the last day, who will be caught up to heaven to meet the Lord forever in the air? Who will be caught up? The church. You and me. When the, on the last day, when the trumpet sounds, we, the church, those who are alive, will be caught up and raptured to be with the Lord forever. Elijah was caught up. In a sense, he was raptured. He never died. He went straight to be with the Lord. On the last day, we will be caught up with the Lord. When Christ returns in glory, the Bible says he will, he will bring with him those who have died in Christ. Those who have already died before us, who have died believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will come with Jesus on the last day at the end of the age. Moses had died. He had been buried. On the last day, he will be among those coming with Jesus, representing those who had already died in Christ. And when Christ returns, what else will there be? There will be a remnant of people still on the earth. A remnant of believing Jews and Gentiles who have endured unspeakable persecution during the great tribulation. A remnant whom our Lord will protect on earth until the end when he separates the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25. Peter, James, and John represent in part that remnant of human beings living on the earth when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. And so right there on the mountain of transfiguration in the gospel of Luke chapter 9, you have a, a, a little picture of what the end will look like. There will be raptured individuals like Elijah who will, be, who will come down with Christ and live and reign with him for a thousand years. There will be those who have died earlier and have come back with Christ to begin his kingdom with him like Moses stood on that mountain. And then there will also be those who were on the earth who went through the great tribulation and who now have been parted apart, have been set aside a part of the sheep and have been given special honor and a white robe to enjoy living and reigning with Christ for the next millennial kingdom. 
When Jesus said, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God, he may have meant that in more ways than one. But that's just an aside. Now when Peter, well, right now, right now back in our gospel of Luke uh, chapter 9 story, Peter, John, and James are sleeping. We haven't read it yet. It's in verse 32. But when he finally, when Peter finally comes to his senses, he looks up and he sees Moses representing the dead in Christ, Elijah representing those caught up with Christ, and he sees his Lord in all his glory. And Peter immediately thinks, okay, something's happening. Peter looks and he wakes up from his slumber and he immediately recognizes the eschatological significance of this moment. So jump, now, jump down. We're going to skip verse 31 for just a moment. Jump down to verse 32 and we'll come back to verse 31 in just a moment. But Peter and those with him, that is John and James, they were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men who stood with him. Verse 33, Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that is, as, as Moses and Elijah were set to leave Jesus, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke ends the verse there saying that Peter did not know what he was saying, not knowing what he said. All of this is taking place on the mountain, and yet the disciples are asleep. They were sleeping everywhere they went. It seems that Jesus tired them out quite a bit. But when they awoke, they saw his glory and the two men, Moses and Elijah, who stood with him. But it was a little bit, uh, it was a little, uh, too little too late. Verse 33 indicates that by the time they were awakened, awakened and aware of their surroundings, that, that verse 33 indicates that Moses and Elijah were about to go. They were about to say goodbye. They were about to leave. Have you ever uh, fallen asleep only to awaken and realize that you missed the best part? I do this all the time in movies. My wife cannot take me to a movie anymore because that theater is so, you know, it's dark in there and the lights are down low and the chair is so comfortable and I just, you know, about an hour in, the movie could be great and I just kind of doze off and then I wake up. And I realized, oh, I missed the best part. Frustrating. I do this all the time with, uh, with baseball. With baseball, I do this all the time. I, I'm watching the game. It's like the fourth or the fifth inning, and I'm on the couch, and the couch is so comfortable, and I start drifting off to sleep, and then all of a sudden I wake up when the announcer's voice rises up with excitement, indicating that someone has just hit a home run, and I missed the best part. Thankfully, I've been getting really good sleep watching baseball lately (laughs) because my Oakland A's haven't hit any home runs in about 45 games. There hasn't been much excitement watching baseball, but, but you just wait, Angel fans. 
I'm just warning you. You may think you have something now, but just, just, just hold the train a little bit. The A's are not done. Peter, John, and James, they wake up and they realize, I missed the best part. They're leaving. Oh, what do we do? What do we do? I know. I know, Peter thinks. Wait a minute. Moses? Elijah? Jesus? The kingdom is here. Elijah is going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The kingdom is here. Jesus, arrayed in all his brilliance, the kingdom has come, Peter thinks, just waking up, just trying to get his bearings. What should I do? And he says, I know, I know. I'll build three tents. Build three tents? Master, it's good for us to be here. Uh, Let us make three tabernacles, three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And we all go, huh? What is Peter thinking? What could possibly lead him to suggest such a thing? And Luke joins in on the skepticism. He adds that editorial comment at the end, saying that Peter didn't know what he was saying. Well, Peter's comment, to be clear, was uh, it was ill-timed. Ill-timed. And that's really what Luke is addressing. However, his com- his, Peter's comment, his suggestion, was not at all thoughtless. Not at all. Actually, it indicates that uh, Peter was quite, quite insightful. You see, Peter was simply responding to what he thought he saw. He saw Moses. He saw Elijah. He saw Messiah, Jesus. And he, quite naturally, thought the kingdom was here. And as the, the idea that the kingdom is here started penetrating Peter's mind, all sorts of things started welling up in him. Things that he had learned about the kingdom as a boy and as a young man in synagogue. And his mind began to settle, to zero in on one thing that he remembered learning in synagogue from the prophet Zechariah when the kingdom comes in all its glory. It's listed there on your outline. You can also read it in Zechariah 14, verse 16. And this is what the prophet Zechariah said at the end of the age. He writes, And it shall come to pass, this is Zechariah 14, 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. At the dawn of the kingdom age, year by year, Zechariah prophesied that the people were to worship the king, 
the Lord of hosts and to keep the feast of tabernacles. What was the feast of tabernacles? Time permits us, the time doesn't permit us to dig into it deeply, but I refer you to Leviticus chapter 23. It was a festival of Israel celebrated at the end of the olive harvest season. And the word tabernacle there, skene, uh, in the Greek, in, in Luke's version, skene, was a, a booth or a tent made of intertwining branches. And in Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke through Moses to the people and he said this, You shall dwell in skene, in tabernacles, in tents. You shall dwell in tents for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in tents, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Feast of Tabernacles recalls Israel's humble beginnings, leaving Egypt, running away from Pharaoh, 40 years in the wilderness, and what did they do because they were in the wilderness? They had to sleep in accommodations that were temporary, that were short-term, intertwining branches, making quick tents to cover themselves for a few days, and then they would continue on their journey, and then they'd make more skene, more, more intertwining branches, put them together so they could have a tent under which to lay their head. The Feast of Tabernacles is looking back at that 40 years of wilderness wandering and saying, I want you the Lord tells Israel, I want you annually to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles so that you remember what it was like 40 years living in temporary shelter. They didn't have a home for 40 years. They didn't have a a roof over their head. They didn't know where their next home was going to be as they walked in the wilderness. And they would set up tents. It was a a long road of suffering, of pain, of difficulty. You know, reading the story of the Exodus, my goodness, all the things they went through, a lot of whining, a lot of complaining, but also a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship, legitimate suffering. And Zechariah says, Zechariah says, and Peter, as a boy, learned it in synagogue, that the prophet Zechariah said at the end of the age, when the kingdom begins, all the nations of the world are to actually keep celebrating that feast, to remind themselves that God has taken them through a time of temporary shelters and twig tents. So, Peter saw Moses, saw Elijah, saw Jesus Messiah and thought, the kingdom is here, what do I do? I build a tent. I celebrate Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus, I'm going to build you a tent. Moses, hold on, I'll build you a tent. Elijah, hold on, let me construct a tent. And we'll celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles as we begin the kingdom of God. Peter did what any pious Jew would do, thinking the kingdom was beginning. But there's only one problem. 
Only one problem, Peter, says Jesus. Peter, you can't skip the here and now and jump over into glory. Peter, I'll show you glimpses of the kingdom in this life, in this earthly life. But don't lose sight of the path I have for you and the path that I am going to take, Jesus said. Before glory comes suffering. Before glory comes suffering. And that is the path I am going to take. And that is the path I ask you to take, Peter, as you await the next best thing. It's not here yet. Peter was sleeping when Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were having a conversation about skipping suffering to get to glory. And in verse 31 they say, it's never the case that the path that the Lord has for us just jumps over this earthly life into glory. Peter wanted it now. Kingdom, build the tents, let's start it. But he was sleeping when the most important conversation was being had. Jump back to verse 30, 30 and 31. Back to 30 and 31. Behold, two men talked with Jesus who were Moses and Elijah. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word deceased there, by the way, this is fascinating, is the Greek word exodus. It's a Greek term. It means departure or death, or it can refer specifically to the exodus of Egypt. And so what you read there in verse 31, and it's only mentioned three times in the Greek New Testament, is that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were all talking about Jesus's coming exodus his coming departure his coming death through suffering before glory they spoke of Jesus's exodus in verse 31 I would term it the second exodus similar to the first exodus in, in that Jesus was was coming like the first exodus to offer freedom from slavery but better than the first exodus, in the second and final exodus, there would not just be freedom from physical slavery, but there would be freedom when Jesus went through the exodus, that is to say his suffering, death, and resurrection, the second exodus would affect eternal freedom from sin and death for all people of all time, to all who trust in Christ for salvation. And Peter, James, and John were sleeping when talk of the second exodus was being had. The road to the next best thing is paved with the suffering of Christ. It's paved with, by the blood of the Lamb, and Jesus wants us to walk that same road with Him before we get to the end. It's not time to build the tents. Feast of Tabernacles is well and good. And you and I will celebrate it one day. Mark that well. But building tents is not for now. 
because the kingdom is not in full just yet. And until that day, until Peter's day (laughs) that he hoped for, that next best thing, he thought it was here, until that day comes, until the kingdom comes, we have a different road to walk. A road of suffering and death. Peter missed it. He was sleeping. His ears were dull. I wonder, are you sleeping? Are your ears dull? I suggest to you that those preachers on TV, um, not all, but many, who get up in their fancy suit and their shiny watch and their big gleaming smile and look at you with the notion that there is no such thing as, as suffering and pain and hardship in life, I suggest to you that they, their ears are dull and they're sleeping as they approach stories like this one in Luke 9. That is not to say that we don't exude hope and joy as Christians. We do. We especially exude it because we know what's coming. We know the kingdom's coming. But in the here and now, we don't preach health and wealth. We don't preach prosperity. We don't preach there are no troubles, there are no trials, and if you do have trials, it must mean you don't have enough faith. That's not what we preach. Jesus said as much. Here in the story of Luke 9, 31, he says, he talked about his exodus with Moses and Elijah. We would do well to listen to Jesus here, and that's precisely what the Heavenly Father tells us to do as he intervenes. Take a look as we close the story, verse 34. While he was saying this, that is Peter suggesting we should build tents. While Peter suggested we should build tents, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Don't take earthly cues from Hollywood or from the sports world. Don't fawn over the teachings of men or of philosophers of bygone eras. Celebrities die. Earthly leaders meet their end. Every guru is eventually buried. But Jesus' words and teaching and model and life lives on. Verse 36, when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. Jesus alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Jesus Christ remained. He alone remained. A a, a word picture, really. As they saw all the glory depart, they had one last thing to look at, and it was Christ. A reminder that they were to focus on Him, on the path that He would take them on. I know we cannot wait for the next best thing. And many of you live your life waiting for the next best thing. Oh, if I could just do this. Oh, if I could just have that. If I could just get this blessing. If I could just get past this hurdle. We're always thinking that the next best thing, that the grass is going to be greener. In this life, the next best thing in this life is uh, not always that great. And usually, once we get there, it leaves us wanting the next best thing. We wait for the best thing. The kingdom of God. But as we wait, let us listen to Christ. 
Let us walk in his steps. Let us follow his pattern. Exodus now. Suffering now. And if we walk that path, we're looking at the next best thing. The kingdom is coming. But as we walk the path of Exodus, when we get to the next best thing, it'll be that much sweeter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us not to jump too far ahead of ourselves. We know what is ahead, Lord. We know that glory is coming. We know that heaven is ours to all of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And we want that day to come, God. All of us do. And God, we, we confess too that some of us are uh, always looking at earthly next best things. We're always thinking that, oh, if I could only just get this or have that that somehow our life would be better. And yet, Lord, we've learned today the lesson that we have from you. That there's only one next best thing, and that is the kingdom of God, but that we can't skip over this present life to get there. You've given us a road. You've given us a journey, Lord. And we're on it right now. Some of us right now are going through deep hardships and trials. You've told us, Lord, that that exodus, that time of exodus, is the road that we're to walk as we wait for glory. Others of us, Lord, life's going pretty well. We might feel like we're already in the next best thing. Yet, Lord, we are not going to jump too far ahead of ourselves. We know, Lord, that as your son walked the road of Calvary, so also you've called us to sometimes go through hardships and trials. Ready ourselves, God. Ready us. By your spirit, prepare us for our time of exodus, which is surely to come. You walked it, Lord Jesus. We want to walk it too. Let us follow you in your steps, a road of suffering, and difficulty, and at times loss, but a road that at the end of which we know will be the next best thing, the kingdom of God, and it will be so much sweeter when we get there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.